Stuff Podcasts. Previously on The Commune. Here was an entity called Centrepoint who were run by a trust. The surrender of all their worldly goods was a very, very minor thing that they did. And then you had someone looking after the money because the money was what they wanted. This episode contains strong language and references to sexual abuse and suicidal thoughts. There's a piece of the Centrepoint story that we're going to look at in this episode. And basically it comes down to this. When Barry realised that sending Bert Potter and his cronies to prison for sexual abuse hadn't dealt to the problem of Centrepoint, they kept on coming back, she came up with a new strategy. And anyway, every time I start telling anyone about this strategy, they go, oh, you mean like Al Capone? And yeah, it, it is a bit like Al Capone. You know that story, right? Alphonse Scarface Capone was a Chicago gangster during America's Prohibition era. It's in the 1920s and 1930s. And he was as gangster as they come. Illegal bars and distilleries, gambling houses, nightclubs, illegal racehorse tracks. He bribed police, bribed judges, he bribed officials, and he literally killed off his competition. Most notoriously was the Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929, when he ordered the killing of seven rivals. But despite all this violence and mayhem that everyone knew about, Capone was somehow untouchable. No one could ever get him on murder or racketeering charges. He was a genius at keeping his distance from the crimes he had ordered. His fingerprints were never anywhere near the scene. Then one day, a particularly smart investigator with the US Treasury figured out a way to get him. Go after Capone for tax fraud. Capone's income wasn't legal, but it was still income. And you got to pay tax on income, even if you're a gangster. So the Treasury's special agent followed the money. And sure enough, he got his man. I mean, it took two juries because Capone paid off the first one, of course. But eventually, Capone landed in jail because of his accounts. That was the lesson to be learned from the story of Al Scarface Capone. When you want to take down the bad guys, sometimes it's best to ignore the big stuff, the bad stuff, and really sweat the small stuff. While you may not consciously be able to recall everything that happens to you, it's all stored in the unconscious mind. And as you let go a little deeper now, you can begin to contact that reality of yourself, begin to experience that there is something very deep inside, something very important. I'm Adam Dudding, and this is The Commune. Episode 11, Zombie Commune. Over the past year, as we've caught up with Barry... Perfect. Hysterical's exactly what we need. Sometimes it feels like she's a woman on a mission. I haven't been hysterical the last few days. But sometimes, uh, it's evident that life is tough. I've been down in the dumps. And no wonder, she's been through hell... In some ways, she's still going through it. <sighs> well, we'll tell you some jokes to, you know, cheer you up. That'll fix it, won't it? That's, that's how it works. I don't know if telling jokes is, is considered a, a leading psychotherapeutic technique. I mean, yes, you'd, know, you'd yes, know more than me. Yes, yes, yes. She has ways of coping. I do watch stand-up comedy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does help. But when you've lived in a cult, escaped from it, and then fought to bring it down... It's inevitable that you still have demons. That is the dark times, that's the sadness, that's the, um, you can't get those years back. And for Barry and other parents from the commune, it's not just about Centrepoint, the entity, it's personal. You can't undo the harm that was done to your children and in the family. Yeah, that's, that's really hard to live with. 
Is it important perhaps to find forgiveness for that part of yourself as well though? It is. I mean, that's the only way to survive. You know, a long time ago, fairly newly out when I was kind of the enormity of it and the effect on my children was just overwhelming and suicidal thoughts were quite rampant. I did get quite a bit of counselling and, you know, of course that was the therapeutic approach. You were doing the best that you knew and forgive yourself. And I think I said that in the Darklands program and Beyond the Darklands was a TV documentary series that featured Bert Potter in 2010. One of my daughters heard that and was like that didn't go down well but that had to be my survival strategy to start with. Well, it feels then, like there's no real alternative. I mean you 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 gotta <laughs> you gotta start at that point and then for me there's the forgiveness but it's still empty words. I mean, it's real inside, it has to be, but also redemption. And so then, okay, what can I do to put that right? And so that was a real driver. You can't put it right, but I mean, do the best best that you can. Mm. So that was, yeah, closing centre point and the trust and all of that. Mm. Yeah. Closing down Centrepoint and the trust and all of that. So once Barry had left, remember, she'd embarked on that mission to get the word out about Centrepoint and make sure everything was done to keep Potter in prison and protect the community's children. She wrote to anyone who'd listen, local MPs, government officials. I started to get politically involved. The parole board. Saying, hey, these people shouldn't be coming back. And yet, those convicted of child sex offences kept being released back to Centrepoint. And this is a bit weird. But then she heard that voice. She heard an auditory voice go, you close it down. Barry knew the only way to stop any more abuse at Centrepoint was to shut it down. And from that point on, it was up to her to do it. Instead of trying to look for reasons why you should do something, here's the why not, and then go and do the things you'd like to do. So, how to take on this Mission Impossible? You go after Centrepoint the way the US Treasury went after Al Capone. Follow the money. You follow the money. Mm, yes. People constantly referred to Centrepoint as a sex commune, but it was more than that. It was also a huge chunk of prime suburban real estate that had been bought with the collective millions of its members over the years. And it was still worth a bomb. Barry says that for Potter, money was always at the heart of things. He would say, you know, I've got nothing, I own nothing. But he was absolutely in control of the money and the millions and wanting a chain of communities that he was in charge of and buying the farm and expansion, expansion, expansion. Remember, way back at the beginning, Centrepoint established itself as a trust, which is basically a legal entity that owns all the assets of an organisation. A group of trustees are supposed to control it. And for Centrepoint, Barry was one of the early trustees. Many of the other pioneers had been too. Keith, the former GP and missionary, had even been chairman at one point. Curiously, though, Potter was never a trustee. In the trust deed, he was instead named as Centrepoint's... Spiritual leader. But there's no getting around the fact that he controlled everything that went on. Yes, yes. And over the years, as people joined Centrepoint, remember they had to hand over all their assets. Barry herself put in... $6,000. That's about $60,000 in today's money. It was from the breakup of her first marriage. It must have been a check in those days. So everyone chipped in. Those were the rules. Well, nearly everyone. Did Bert put anything in? No, no, he didn't. It later turned out Potter had given about $6,000 to his ex-wife around the time everyone was meant to be handing over all their worldly wealth. Other people, if they did that, they did that secretly because that wasn't permitted. And later, it turned out he had even more stashed away. 
$4,000 in a bank account in America. Anyway, Barry thinks, hmm, the trust has got all this money and assets, which came from people who've left Centrepoint, people who are vulnerable, people who are taken advantage of. Surely they could get it back, suck the money out of the place, and it would die. So if you're going to kill this beast, the heart was the trust. That's how it was in my mind. So she and a friend visit a professor at the Auckland University Law School to see what he thinks. And then the opinion came back, and it was very clear, no, you put money into a charitable trust. You can't get it back. You can't go, I put my $10 into the Red Cross. Now I want it back. You just can't. And so he just said there wasn't a legal leg to stand on for getting our money back. Besides, no one had any receipts. So that sort of went flat. But Barry is nothing if not tenacious. She goes to see a senior politician. He's a bit sceptical and tells her he thinks there's... Nothing you could do. But as she leaves, he says, look... If you're really serious about this, contact the Crown Law Office. Crown Law. That's the agency which represents the government from a legal perspective. So Barry gets in touch with them... And they say... Look, it's our job to protect trusts. We've never closed a trust down in New Zealand, so you're wasting your time. But Barry has as much time as she has tenacity. I mean, she's already given Centrepoint so much of her life. Why not persevere? So she keeps on at Crown Law, and eventually they say... Well, if you can get six affidavits about criminal activity, we might look into it. Of course Barry was up for that. So I got those six affidavits from significant people. Crown Law reads them and goes... OK, we'll look into this, but you need to get yourself a lawyer. Barry is at last making progress. But it's tough going. And then she gets some luck. Through the ex-Centrepoint community and friends of friends they find a lawyer who's just come back to New Zealand. And he's interested because it's such an unusual case. Barry knows straight away that this guy... Bruce Gray. ...is perfect. (laughs) If I believed in God, I'd say sent from God. Bruce Gray agrees that attacking the trust is not straightforward. But he has an idea. He says... Look, Barry, if you go for closing the trust... Everything will go back to the Crown. What we have to do is close the community, but just reform the trust so that assets can be held and somehow we'll put them in good caring. So things are at a crossroads. With those six affidavits in hand, the government is now considering an inquiry into the Centrepoint Trust. And meanwhile, Barry and her team of ex-Centrepoint supporters, with the help of... Bruce Gray. Bruce Gray, sent by God. Yes, yes have figured out... You don't kill the trust, you change the trust. Yes, yes. Continue. Well, actually, before we continue, we need to explain a few things. Of course, not everyone agreed with Barry. Not everyone wanted to tear Centrepoint down. In fact, there were four different factions in play around this time. There was Barry's group. All been former adults at Centrepoint. In that group, there were about 50 people. Then some of the children got wind of it and started challenging our group. These were former children of Centrepoint, including some of those girls who'd taken cases to court. And understandably... The girls had no trust of their adults. Adults, after all, had put them in the position they were in in the first place. I don't exactly know what they were imagining we were trying to do. But nonetheless... Barry told Bruce Gray... We're not going to be in opposition to the children. We are just not. They're forming and getting a lawyer. We've got to coordinate and be working together. So that's what happened. About 40 ex-children signed up to this fight, working alongside, but separate to, the ex-adults in a kind of rebel alliance. Team, let's bring this place down. But then there were two other major factions... First up, a group of people who were fighting to keep Centrepoint going in spirit, but with big reforms. And this particular group was Barbara, one of the originals. I'd felt like the community was gone. 
she and others formed the group that wanted to build a new community without a charismatic leader. So we're up to three groups now. And then finally... The other group who were totally dedicated to Bert. This fourth group, which included Potter himself, were called the Old Believers. And they wanted to stick with Potter as the centrepoint leader. In their minds, things could carry on just as they had, thanks very much, and anyone who didn't like it could bugger off. So got that? Four groups. One made up of ex-adults, another made up of ex-children, these two in a sort of alliance to bring it down, a third group who want to keep it going but without Potter's leadership, and a fourth who want Potter to remain the guru. So there were those four groups, all had lawyers, and then the Crown Law had their lawyer. And for a while, it's a giant standoff. In parallel to this four-party bun fight that was going on, remember Crown Law was considering an inquiry into Centrepoint. A lot of the same issues, but a totally separate process. And Barry was pushing hard for that too, writing letters, organising others to gather evidence, lobbying politicians. Push, push, push. You've got to do something about this. Stop resisting. And finally... They set up the inquiry, the Solicitor General's inquiry, and that was Elsa Duffy at the head of it and two financial men. So Barry has got one of the things she wanted. Elsa Duffy, a Queen's Counsel, that's a lawyer recognised as being at the top of their game, was appointed to take a deep dive and see what was happening and what had happened under the umbrella of the Centrepoint Trust. At a few points during this podcast, we've really questioned what Barry was up to. But also, you do have to admire her. The tenacity it took to embark on this mission. To shoulder responsibility for putting some things right. Here's Ray, the cop. Look, I think she was a woman of great integrity and courage. She was torn because of her earlier involvement. But I think she did the right thing and she knew she was doing the right thing. And that wasn't easy. Robert, the pioneer who left early on and went to the police, he could see that even though Barry had stayed on for a very long time, she wasn't like many of the others. She saw, like me, that she couldn't change it. She was very loyal, Barry, to everybody. She was. She fucking lovely. So, lovely Barry. Courageous Barry. Loyal Barry. How's she going to pull this off? She's got this all lined up, but it all still seems so hard. Luckily for her, she has a lot of people on her side, but she also has a secret weapon. Do you think anyone ever figured out that there was a, a, a secret pipeline of information? Um. That's right. Barry was well and truly gone from Centrepoint, but in her battle to bring the place down, she had an insider feeding her information. After the break... It was the mole, and I was very protective of him for years, but now, you know... You know that sting we play at the start of each episode? Stuff Podcasts. Yeah, that one. We put it there because The Commune isn't the only show to come from the Stuff podcast empire. Stuff has been making podcasts since 2017 when we launched the true crime series Black Hands. And in the years since then, we've launched another 20-odd series covering a huge range of topics. The Erebus disaster, masculinity, the coronavirus pandemic, disability, the Polynesian Panthers, and many more things I don't have time to mention in this very short ad. They are all available at stuff.co.nz slash podcasts. Go check them out just as soon as you've got to the end of this episode of The Commune. The one thing you can say about the story of John Sweden is it's complicated. Okay, I've just killed the suspense right away. Barry's mole, the insider feeding her information, was John, her ex-husband, the father of her youngest daughter. So while Barry is fighting to bring Centrepoint down, John's on the inside, and he's smuggling ammunition out to Barry to use against the commune he's still living in. So what sort of things? Things like the preschool roster? Doesn't sound like much, but this roster 
showed that people with convictions for child sex abuse who'd been released back to Centrepoint were now working at the community's preschool. And there was other stuff too. Letters from prison, affidavits from people. You'd check the computers four o'clock in the morning. It was quite a powerful file. It wasn't just text documents. John also secretly taped some of Centrepoint's internal meetings. And he smuggled those tapes to Barry too. Money-wise, I am a cruel advocist, and I hate giving lawyers money. The voice you're hearing is Dave, the finance guy. He was very firmly in the old believers camp. I do feel that the trustee represents what I want, and it's 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 no different to when I first came in. I didn't come for six months because the thing I saw in the trustee was. Bert Potter has final say in matters of the pay, which was patently anything. All right, the, the tapes don't contain any particularly stunning revelations, but they do show how deeply divided the community was. And for Barry and her team, division inside represented hope outside. I still want that, and I would like you to give me the respect of being able Yeah... Okay, this music, we should explain, it's on the tape. It must have been on the cassette before John recorded over it with the meeting. We think that it's probably a little composition of John's. Guess he had a synthesizer in there. Like we said, he's complicated. So, as well as being someone who dabbled in creating electronic music and in spying... John was best known for his pottery. There used to be a big competition for ceramic artists and, you know, he'd been a winner. You can still find his work for sale in pottery auctions. John Sweden was born in Hamburg, Germany, during World War II. Born, in fact, during a bombing raid. When he was six months old, his father was captured by the Russian army and spent seven years in prison. So, right from the start, life wasn't easy for young John. We know this because he wrote about it in the Centrepoint magazine and also in his religious statement to the Takapuna Council all those years ago. John moved to New Zealand when he was nine years old. He married, had two kids, and had swanky jobs in advertising, including as managing director of his own agency. Then his life kind of unravelled for a while. He walked away from his career and his marriage fell apart. Eventually, he found the craft of pottery. He met Barry helped establish Centrepoint, was one of a number of men at the community who had a vasectomy reversal and became a father again. John wrote about the power of Bert Potter and what an influence this guru figure had been on his life. That influence, though, would eventually lead him to prison. John was one of the men charged with child sex offences from the early days of Centrepoint. In his case, indecent assault of two girls, one aged about 12, the other 14. At first... The response from most of those accused was denial. But when John landed in court in 1992, he reacted differently. Here's Barry. By the time the, what could we call it, the convictions or the The charges charges came through, John had fully accepted his actions were harmful and not okay. And he was the first to break ranks and plead guilty. And at his first meeting with the prison psychologist, he just admitted immediately it was wrong. He was hugely wrong, and he was sorry for the harm done. And as he told me later, the psychologist nearly fell off a chair because it was so unusual to get that. But don't just take Barry's word for it. Here's what the judge had to say when he sentenced John to 11 and a half months in prison. I accept you had no intention of causing harm to either child. You went astray under the powerful influence of a misguided social experiment. The judge went on to say that John had shown considerable courage and leadership in taking this stand. There are others coming to trial who are denying their part in such matters. The pressure on you not to break ranks must have been quite strong. So yeah, with John... It's complicated. John Sweden died while we were making this podcast. He was 78. Remember, Barry and John split up around 1987. 
yet she can't entirely turn her back on that shared past. One of the things I loved about John, he could be so funny. (laughs) Oh dear. And in amongst the hoard of documents Barry had given us, we found evidence of that ourselves. Take the certificate he printed up and put on the Centrepoint notice board for the Global International Environment and Humanitarian Award of Notable Achievement and Excellence for the Advancement of Universal Peace and Economic Prosperity. Prosperity. Bert Potter, recipient (laughs) for his dedication to fundamentalism and believing his own bullshit. Signed 30th of October 1996, signature God. (laughs) Um, But really, perhaps the greatest piece of satire John produced? Christmas carols was surely this. Tonight in the lounge, to be sung with gusto, conviction and feeling. (laughs) On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me one sugar pill and a lesson, lesson in honesty. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me one sugar pill, ten tabs of acid, and a lesson in honesty. In case you haven't figured it out, this is the traditional carol, The Twelve Days of Christmas, with special centerpoint lyrics by John. On the fourth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me one sugar pill, ten tabs of acid, one loan from Amac, one paper shredder. When Barry looks back at what John did, the good and the bad, she's left thinking, you know, at least he tried. He made some big mistakes, huge mistakes, and there's no getting away from the damage they caused. But then he fronted up to the court, pleaded guilty, went to prison, returned to Centrepoint, and then became Barry's mole. To my mind, it does help me forgive him a lot. I know it's kind of a classic word, redemption, but it became quite an important word for me that taking, you know, in the legal world it's restorative justice, but, you know, it's a profound human concept. When you mess up, um, do something to redeem what you've done. You can't go back and undo it, but do something. And so that was him doing that. During this period when you've got John running around being the spy and Barry's team and the Centrepoint kids team outside trying to tear the walls down, it's fair to say things were getting quite tense inside the community. Sometimes there were punches thrown. Once there was an instant where someone tipped a bowl of muesli over someone else's head during an argument. That incident made the Centrepoint magazine with a poem entitled Serial Offender. Actually, it even made the real newspapers a couple of weeks later when police cited it as evidence of escalating tensions. The police then visited Centrepoint and seized 10 firearms. A community member quoted in the newspaper said the guns were only used to kill cows and possums and that the police would have been better off seizing the muesli. One of the teenagers we've spoken to from the 1990s, who didn't want to go on tape, remembers this period as a time of division and sadness. Kids would be watching the parents and their factions fighting. One group huddled at a table over on that side, the other over on the other. Kids in the middle, just getting on with each other regardless and rolling their eyes. She's sad Centrepoint couldn't survive in one form or another, but she saw how entrenched people were. Those who wanted a new community versus the Potter loyalists, the old believers. How would you characterise the religious beliefs of Bert Potter? Oh, very similar to the teachings of Jesus Christ. 
there to love one another, love, love your neighbour, stop judging people. Love your neighbour and love your neighbour's children? Oh, well, I mean, that's a highly, highly, highly emotive statement. And This is Dave, the finance guy, being interviewed by Kim Hill on Radio New Zealand in the late 90s after he's been released from prison for child sex offences, including against a girl who was... Four years old. That's very young, Dave. It is, it is, it is very young. Very young for a child to instigate sexual activity. Well, maybe, but maybe they do. I don't, I don't know whether you've had children and seen them, but in fact, young children are sexual animals. Yep. Even after serving a jail term... Dave was saying it was the child who instigated the activity, and so that was okay. Sound familiar? On the sexuality of children. Are you continuing to put those into practice amongst the members who still adhere to Bert Potter's spiritual views? I'm not quite sure what you mean. Are you still allowing four-year-old girls to allegedly instigate sexual activity with you? Personally, it hasn't happened to me again in... And so I know that if it did happen, I, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. The, the things I got, you know, one of the things I got convicted of was that a young girl came and sat on my knee and, and took my hand and put it between her legs. And for that, I served a year in jail. Right now that... I don't know what I'd do that if the same thing happened. It, it actually wasn't a big deal for me. By the time this interview rolled out over the airwaves, Dave the Finance Guy was one of the few originals left at Centrepoint. Joining him in the pro-Potter faction were Henry and Richard, two of those who had arrived in the early days and ended up going to jail. Also Ulrich the chemical engineer, another who'd spent time in jail for drugs and sex offences. Ulrich had taken over the magazine, and it's fair to say he must have been a better drug maker than editor. Barry had produced a slick, Pravda version of the magazine in her time, but under Ulrich, the magazine was clearly produced on a shoestring and felt more like a crappy cyclostyle newsletter handed around troops in the trenches. Meanwhile, Potter was still in jail and becoming more and more isolated and lonely, almost deranged. His wife Margaret had left him not long after the big court case and divorced him soon after. From his prison cell, he wrote a series of essays called Living and Loving, which, suffice to say, spouted much of the same old waffle he'd been spouting for years, including enthusiastic endorsement of sexual contact between adults and children. In his letters to the community, he goes on and on about one of the ex-members, saying he must have worked in cahoots with the girls who ended up giving evidence against him. He wails that people have betrayed him, that they've stolen from the community, told lies, and actually some of them, hypocritically, have engaged in underage sex themselves. By 1998, Potter has had a couple of heart attacks, is suffering from arthritis in his shoulder, and has a gap in his top teeth where an inmate punched him. He is nearing the end of his sentence and agitating to go back to Centrepoint. But it's a toss-up as to what's looking more shaky, the ageing guru or the commune he wants to reign over once more. We have to accept that those principles are not captured very carefully. One of the final blows to Centrepoint came from that Queen's Council, the lawyer... Elsa Duffy. ...who, remember, had started... ...the Solicitor General's inquiry... ...that Barry had agitated for. It took a while... Two years. ...but eventually... ...she came out with that massive two-volume report. It landed on Centrepoint like a bomb. Elsa Duffy had surgically dismantled Centrepoint's overblown claims about itself stretching all the way back to its foundation. She was brilliant. Well, that depended on your viewpoint. Elsa Duffy didn't seem so brilliant to the old believers, like Dave the finance guy. He claims that the inquiry's findings constitute religious persecution. And he joins me now. Here he is in that Radio New Zealand interview with Kim Hill again. Why do you feel religiously persecuted? Oh, well, basically because it seems to be a campaign. I don't know that it's orchestrated, but it's happening. Um, and the report of um, Arthur Duffy and the Committee of Inquiry says that Bert, that Bert Potter does, 
did burp by his teachings aren't uh, religious and that he's not fit to be our spiritual leader. But. That's right. So, yeah, one of the things the report did was slam the idea that Centrepoint was a legitimate religion. It also slapped down a bunch of things that were central to the commune's DNA, including the therapy. Duffy said Centrepoint's therapists might be well-meaning, but they lacked qualifications, training, and adherence to professional and ethical standards. Sexual relationships between counsellors and clients, the practice that Potter always bragged about. The best thing you can do for when they come to you for help is to give them a good, very loving, very intimate fuck. All these years later, that was still going on sometimes. The inquiry also had big problems with the morality of making vulnerable people hand over cash and worldly possessions when they joined. Elsa Duffy wrote that for someone who arrived at the community at a particularly low point in their life and had come to depend on the commune, the choice between joining, and all that entailed, or leaving, may have been no choice at all. And besides, the inquiry pointed out, these people had joined Centrepoint in the hope of a better, less selfish, more honest, loving lifestyle. Instead, quote, the utopian ideal never eventuated. And then there was all the money that had disappeared. $120,000 in legal bills over the trust fight. two hundred and thirty grand on criminal legal fees. There was money for holidays for some members. $1.4 million was lost on that goat farm malarkey. And then things like a dodgy $1 million transfer of money to Centrepoint from AMAC, the abortion service Centrepoint members had gained control of. In the end, the loan was registered as a mortgage against Centrepoint and became a financial millstone. If you're listening closely, you might have noticed that in John Sweden's Christmas sing-along satire, one of the things he mentioned was... One loan from AMAC. Anyway, it was episodes like this that convinced Elsa Duffy the trust itself was dysfunctional and indeed had never operated properly. Everyone, all four factions, ended up in court arguing over this carcass, really, albeit a carcass whose assets were worth about $7 million. Barry says things dragged on until one particular no-nonsense judge was appointed. Justice Cartwright. And she just kind of went, this case could feed the lawyers of Auckland for (laughs) for decades to come. This has to come to an end. This judge was Sylvia, now Dame Sylvia Cartwright, a huge figure in New Zealand law who would become the country's Governor-General soon after this. And she pulled us into negotiation. You can imagine how it went. Pulling into one room all these people who tried to establish this loving community but who were now at war with each other. It wasn't pretty. I kind of exploded and shamed myself. At one point, Dave the finance guy was saying that the old believers were going off to establish another community and they would need $1 million to build an ablution block. Barry couldn't help herself and yelled out, I will put in $20 for five buckets and you can... (laughs) In the end, the old believers including Dave, Ulrich, Richard, Henry, agreed to leave the property within three months if they and their children were given $49,000 each. So that's $1.4 million in total. By this time, Potter was out of prison and he took a payout like the others. They would all walk away from Centrepoint completely. I'm, I'm not sure happy was the word. I don't think anyone was happy. Because, you know, it pissed some people off that here were these people, some of them convicted sex offenders, men who had in the eyes of many caused so much damage, walking away with a stack of cash when nobody else was. I copped a lot of anger from people. How dare you agree to give them any money at all? And it was hard for people to comprehend but we had to give them something to get them to sign themselves out of the trust. So it was exhaustion, it was relief, it was, um, 
I just don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to hear anybody's anger about me. If you weren't there um, negotiating, don't tell me what I should have done. With the old believers out of the way, Centrepoint was basically restructured out of existence on March the 29th, 2000. It was over. With a story like this, there's no such thing as a happy ending. But all the same, some things were made right. The trust was renamed the New Zealand Community Growth Trust. Notice the word Centrepoint has disappeared. This new version of the trust had the task of administering the remaining assets, including the property, and supporting the ex-members and children. This new trust is still going today. It means that children of Centrepoint have been able to get money for things like dental treatment and education. It paid for things like that big, massive university study into the impacts of Centrepoint on its children. It's not perfect by any stretch. People we've spoken to are angry and frustrated about the new trust even today. Some say they feel re-victimised every time they have to ask for money from it. Others reckon the decisions about who gets a grant or not aren't always fair. In its 22 years, Centrepoint had so many people through it. So many people with different backgrounds, so many people with different experiences, so many people with different stories. And in the 20 years since the commune's collapse, they've scattered far and wide. And they've had time to reflect and think about the place. You've heard a lot from people who lived there. We discovered that Centrepoint people are often really, really good at talking. But there are some people who have been, I guess you could say, less enthusiastic about talking. It's not like we didn't try. Henry here. Hello, Henry. It's uh, my name's Adam Dudding. I'm a reporter with Stuff, um, and uh, my colleague Eugene and I are making a podcast documentary about Centrepoint. Uh, sorry, no thanks. Yeah, this is Henry, one of the guys who got sent to prison. I kind of prattle on a bit, trying to convince him to chat, but well, I thought I thought I made it quite clear to you a couple of minutes ago that yeah. I don't want to talk to you at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. No, well, I look, I just, just Thank you. I thought I'd take the chance to, to let you know who I am yeah. and, and, yeah. and why perhaps yeah. you could trust us to listen to what you're saying. But, I wouldn't trust you with a parasite. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I, yeah. Huh. Well, if at first, etc. Hi, Ian speaking. Hello, Ian. Um, yeah. My name's Adam Dudding. I'm a reporter with Staff. Um, and my colleague, Eugene Bingham, and I are making a, a podcast. A, this is Ian, who joined in the early 80s, was chairman of the trust at one point, and, yeah, went to jail over the drug network. So interested to know if you're, you're happy to talk to us. No, well, thanks very much for the offer, but but, but my, my help, you know... I won't do it, right? My health situation is be, is really bad just now, and so I'm not going to get into into anything else. But thanks for the offer, anyway. Well, at least he was polite. The number you have called is not currently active, or is the invalid. Is not of course, not everyone was easy to find twenty years down the track. Dial again. Check the number and redial. He's a he's a mobile number for him. Yeah. Sure. Hello, is this? It is. Very fine. Excellent. Um, my name is Adam. For legal reasons, we can't name this man, and we've changed his voice. Uh-huh. He wasn't convicted of anything, but he's a guy who was at Centrepoint for a bunch of a bunch of time in the, in the eighties through the nineties. That's true. I was there for a bunch of time in the. 1890. <laughs> <laughs> Not the 1890s. Uh, Yes, um, but uh, I don't want to talk to you. Right. And, uh, I, can, I'm can, not going to. Sure. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to. Sure. Can you tell me, just, can you tell me why? Uh, yes. 
it's because I have a family mm-hmm. and uh, um, the, uh, there has not been any publicity about Centrepoint that has done uh, my family in good and uh, that's all I'm, I have no comment on that's all I'm going to say. Wow. He's there? He's there. He doesn't want to talk? No. He's like lots of them. Uh, it's interesting, uh, isn't it? The children want to talk, but the adults. Well, also, yes. for me, I just felt a little... It's always a little bit tense doing a cold call on somebody who you think might be a hostile interviewee. Yeah. You know, just like, you know, you know, blood pressure goes up a little sure. bit. And it's, it's, you're ready to, you know, you, you know, you're going to push people a tiny bit past what they're comfortable with and what you're comfortable with. But... Actually, when he said, I don't want to talk because it's not good for my family, just for, I just suddenly thought about everything we've heard over the last six yeah. months. And I thought, actually, fuck you. It's become apparent while doing this that there's a whole bunch of people for whom the silence and the lies and the, or if, even even just not talking because you don't want to hurt your family, yeah. isn't doing anybody any good. Yeah, And so just a little part of me... If I was him, I would have said the same thing. Sure. I'm sure. Mm. No comment mm. is a really good comment. But I also just, I got a little bit annoyed mm. at him, actually, all of a sudden thinking, yeah, well, it's a nice view looking after yourself and your family. One of the other people we tried to speak to was Ulrich, the chemical engineer. He lives up north now on a large block of land. We found an email address for him, hoping to be able to get him to agree to an interview. But it didn't go so well. We exchanged a few emails, but he was not interested in engaging, accusing our news organisation of being biased towards the government or something, and then it went down a COVID-19 conspiracy rabbit hole. He also said he thought that we had an agenda, it's unclear what, and that in any event, society was not ready to hear the truth about Centrepoint. It's a pity Ulrich wouldn't talk to us. Yes, he went to jail for sex and drugs charges, but like we said earlier, a lot of people we've spoken to had fond memories of Ulrich. He was a character who was central to the Centrepoint story. He was literally there on day one. Anyway, while we're on a roll on the phones, we thought we'd try John Potter, Bert Potter's son. Here we are. No more procrastinatory activities available. Hi, it's John Potter here. I'm not available right at the moment. Your best bet to get hold of me. But after going to voicemail and then emailing him, we got an email back. No, he didn't want to talk. We also tried John's wife, Felicity. She was the community's GP from the late 80s. She wasn't even around at the time of the early historic sex offences that John was jailed for, and there have never been any such allegations against her. Hello, Felicity. Um, my name's Adam Dudding. I'm a reporter with Stuff. Um, oh, OK, Adam. Yes, I know who you are, I oh, think. Right. right. Um, <laughs> and it seems she already knows all about us. Word has got around. Bingham and I are making a podcast about Centrepoint. Um, I know about this, yes. Oh, well, there you go. And so uh, you're one of the people that we thought it would be good to talk to. So we're interested in setting up an interview with you, if that's possible. Probably not, thank you, Adam. Um, I, I think I, we've been burnt enough. We've been burnt enough, thank you. <laughs> Who did you know from the kids at CP that you went right, to school back, with? Back in the day, uh, Angie was, was one. I was in a school production with Angie. And at North Cross, there were other kids who I didn't know terribly well. Conversation kind of drifts in the way that lots of these conversations have. She's trying to suss me out and what we're up to. But in the end... Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, I never even lived there, um, Adam. Sure, I, I'm uh, actually quite interested when you say that because there's the, there's the whole business of you've said that you didn't live at Centrepoint, but you, you were the GP, right? You, and you were living... I, 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 Adam, I'm not prepared to have an interview. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, oh, no, no, sure. This is sounding like an interview now, and I'm, I'm not prepared. I mean, you're probably recording it, and I'm not happy about that. 
No, well, I, um, for sure. I mean, it was just you, you. You brought out the claim of of not living there. Yeah, and, yeah. And I mean, I, I, well, I, I mean, I, I think you could talk to any member or, or, or resident of Centre Point and ask if I lived there, and they'd say no, I didn't. Hmm. So, um, uh, you know, I think that's that that's not that is not under dispute. Let's be clear. Felicity and John lived in a caravan next to Potter's Gills Road place, the house that he retreated to up the hill from the main Centrepoint buildings. She was the GP after Keith. In the September 1990 edition of the Centrepoint magazine, after Potter was arrested the first time, Felicity wrote that while she was not a member, she was, quote, deeply committed to Centrepoint and its growth, unquote. But uh, anyway, I mean, I think we've been, um, we, you know, uh, no matter no matter what happens, no apology would ever be enough, um, quite clearly. And um, and I all I see it is just stirring up, um, um, you know, m- m- more distress. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. Let's look. I've, I, we've we've talked to quite a lot of of Centrepoint kids and some Centrepoint adults, and I think. I, I don't know if they'd agree with you. There's um there there's there's different kinds of stirring up, and uh, some I think <laughs> yeah, some well, and we've I think seen quite a lot of it recently. Yeah. Oh no no um, and, look and and, it's, it's and, just um, a... and I've not been you know I mean I'm not I don't actually think that I've seen a lot of healing happen from that. What would healing look like? Okay, Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's enough. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay. Thanks, Felicity. We kept trying others, but despite our efforts, it looked like we weren't going to get a lot more. That's quite weird. That we weren't going to get to interview anyone who had been convicted of sex crimes against children at Centrepoint, anyone who had actually served time, anyone who could actually answer our questions about whether they were sorry for the damage caused at Centrepoint, or reflect on what had happened. And then, one day... Hello, Adam speaking. The phone rang. Hello. Oh, hello. Sorry. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? Hello. 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 Hello, is this... was episode 11 of The Commune, a Stuff production. There is one episode to come. The Commune was researched, written and produced by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. Mixing by Andrew McDowell at Digicake, music by Audio Network. For more information about the show, head to stuff.co.nz slash thecommune. Thecommune.